Good afternoon and welcome to the UTA Planetarium for the UTA College of Science podcast, Voices Live. Thoughts from Maverick scientists leading the charge to innovate, discover, and learn. Today we're going to hear from UTA Physics' Rick Wilder in this interactive conversation in front of our live studio audience right here in the UTA Planetarium. So, Rick, uh, thanks for being here and thanks for carrying the banner for the physics department. Um, yeah, thanks for asking me to do this. Yeah. I guess just start off uh, telling us a little about yourself. Who are you and uh, what do you do here at UTA? Yeah, so uh, my name is uh, Rick Wilder. I uh, actually only recently got hired here right in the middle of COVID is when I uh, first came here, September 2020. Um, I'm in the physics department and specifically I'm in the new and well, not new, but definitely growing, uh, space physics group. And so a lot of people ask me what the difference between space physics and astrophysics is. And so space physics is really anything that you can fly a spacecraft to, to study in situ, you know, the spacecraft can fly through the things you want to study. Whereas I view astrophysics as more of the stuff you have to see remotely. So distant stars and galaxies and black holes and stuff. So anything you can fly to uh, with our current technology falls under the purview of space physics. So that includes the near earth space environment, which is what I study. It includes, you know, the sun, the solar wind, the space environment near other planets, um, as well as, you know, the outer regions of the solar system, you know, Voyager recently actually crossed one of the boundaries between our solar system and interstellar space. And so that's sort of the edge of space physics. It's awesome. Um, here in the planetarium, maybe fittingly, uh, you can, uh, explore space and, and, uh, great shows that they have here in educational programming for, uh, both college, uh, students and uh, K through 12 programs. I know that got students in here all the time. I, I think one of the, f the first time I met you, I think was a photo shoot in here. So yeah, uh, glad to be back in here. Um, I, I think that photo shoot was uh, something to do with solar winds or, or uh, the magnetosphere. Um, yeah, it was the magnetosphere. We had a big picture of the sun uh, with the sun's magnetic field and stuff on the background. But yeah, yeah, it was, uh, um, it was about a, uh, a NASA mission that I, uh, lead sort of the data acquisition for. So it's a really high resolution mission meant to really probe plasma and space down to the smallest details we can. And so it requires a lot of data and we're limited by, you know, how much time the satellites spend over the dishes, so we have to be very careful about what events we pick to study and what we bring down. And so I, I'm one of the leaders of the team that manages that. And we have volunteer scientists that get to look at, uh, you know, uh, thumbnails of data and say, OK, this one looks like one where I want the full resolution. And what's great about it is it's stuff that students can do. And we have software for it. And so it's basically a great opportunity because you get bragging rights to say, hey, I get to control this NASA satellite from my couch, you know, so. So it's not like flying an unmanned vehicle. It's uh, you're, you're getting uh, it's talk about the there's a number of satellites that you maybe get get data from. And, and what does that look like? Is it publicly available information that that you get into or is it part of specific projects that you're connected to? So the data is all publicly available. Um, any of the big NASA missions now, um, 
you know, uh, after a certain time frame, we have to make our data available within 30 days, uh, fully calibrated and stuff. So anyone can go grab it. Um, the data for the, this mission is called magnetospheric multiscale. It's uh, four satellites in a tetrahedron shape. So we can actually get like a 3D image of what we're flying through. Um, and the data is hosted at two places, NASA Goddard Space Flight Center, uh, which is in Maryland. And then where I used to work, the University of Colorado Boulder as one of the uh, servers. That's actually where the data first comes down and gets processed and all that. So it's all publicly available. So. Awesome. Awesome. So uh, MMS for short, right? Mm -hmm. MMS. And then there's uh, like Temis and ACE. Are those other satellites that uh, maybe those are different projects? So they're, they're all studying the same phenomena. You know, we're really trying to understand the interaction between the solar wind, which is plasma that kind of blows off the sun's corona, the outermost layer of the sun's atmosphere. You know, we want to see how that interacts with Earth's magnetic field and predict its effects on the ground and on the technology we depend on. Um, and so uh, ACE is actually um, is situated between the Earth and the sun. So it gets to be sort of a monitor of what solar wind conditions we're going to see at Earth about an hour from now. Um, it was originally done for science, but then it ended up being used as a monitor for space weather and operations. We call it space weather. Um, so MMS is in the Earth's magnetosphere, and it's really probing the microphysics of what's going on right at the point where the solar wind hits our magnetic field. That's what MMS is for. Themis is something a little different. It's, uh, so MMS, the spacecraft, are really close together. It's sort of like a microscope. You know, we're trying to probe small scale. Themis is spread out over large distances. Their orbits are heavily separated so that you can actually look at the large scale behavior of the Earth's magnetosphere. That's the protective bubble created by our magnetic field. We can kind of see the large scale behavior and how that impacts the aurora. Um, Themis also comes with an array of uh, auroral imagers on the ground. So, you know, uh, particles move along the magnetic field and they hit our atmosphere and it gives off light. And that's what the aurora is. So with Themis uh, in conjunction with those all sky imagers, you know, they're little fisheye cameras that look up at the sky. You can actually start to look at, OK, we see this stuff going on in our spacecraft and then we see this vortex in the aurora or some, you know, they have things called streamers, which are like these little they look like little streamers flying across the sky of light. And so you can start to try to correlate what's going on out in space with what you see on the ground as you're looking up at the night sky. So it's awesome. Um, so back it up a little bit for ignorant guys like me. Oh um, yeah, yeah. The magnetosphere. Can you just, how, how high up is that? What's kind of the range of distance and, and, um, what all happens? Is that. So like it's, it's space? very large. Okay. Um, it's, it's, it's very big. Um, so, you know, and when we're talking about magnetospheric science, we usually measure stuff in earth radii, the radius of the earth which is, um, you know, around 6,000 kilometers. Um, I don't know how to convert that to miles, but, um, it's big, right? Earth is a big planet. Um, so the magnetosphere, um, you know, it's, it's basically the earth's magnetic field protects us some from those charged particles that are blowing off the sun. And so it kind of hits the earth and the magnetic field lines are like rubber bands. So they get kind of compressed on the side facing the sun. We call that the day side. 
And then they stretch out into this long comet-like tail on the side facing away from the sun, what we call the night side. And so you get this comet shape. The day side boundary is about between 10 and 15 Earth radii out. So, you know, it's about seven times the diameter of the Earth. And then the tail can extend 100 plus Earth radii. So the tail goes really far back. It's like a long comet. And very rarely do we actually probe that far. (laughs) Uh, MMS, for example, is, you know, about a third of the length down the tail when it's in the tail. So, okay. Well, you, um, you touched on this a little bit, uh, but the, the implications of, you know, why does it matter um, what's happening to the magnetosphere and, and, you know, coronal mass ejections and solar winds, who, who cares? Right. So um, what happens is there are certain um, events on the sun, you know, the sun, it's a coronal mass ejection, you know, just blasts out a large amount of plasma and it usually carries strong magnetic fields in it. And so if the magnetic fields are oriented the right way, they can actually tear open Earth's magnetic field. And then that way, particles and energy from the sun actually get inside. They break into our protective bubble. Uh, Now, what that does is it stirs up a lot of activity, like a storm. You can view it like a big storm made of plasma in our uh, magnetosphere. That maps down to the upper layer of our atmosphere called the ionosphere. Now, the ionosphere um, also has charged particles because it's heated so much by the sun that it becomes a plasma. You know, the, um, uh, the molecules, the electrons break off the molecules and it becomes uh, plasma is what we call it. Um, and so you start driving electric currents in the ionosphere uh, from all this activity because they're charged particles moving. Those electric currents can then induce magnetic disturbances on the ground, which can create electric currents in the ground that affect our power grid. So you can blow transformers. Um, Those ground currents can uh, cause corrosion of oil pipelines. Um, Additionally, if the upper atmosphere is really, really disturbed, radio signals uh, that try to propagate through from, you know, our phones or our GPS receivers to the satellites can get disrupted. And so, um, you know, during disturbed conditions, GPS can lose lock. You can suddenly not have your navigation, which is bad for pilots. It's bad for, you know, um, any sort of defense application to suddenly lose your navigation. Um, And then additionally, during these storms, you stir up a lot of radiation in a region around Earth called the radiation belts, which is where a lot of our communication satellites are just sitting. So they're getting bombarded by these super energetic electrons. Some of those are precipitating into our atmosphere. You know, polar flights have to be diverted because it can actually be a risk, a health risk to passengers and flights as these energetic particles are coming along the field line. So it affects a lot of things in our technology that we take for granted. Um, And the more dependent we become on that technology, the more important space weather is. Yeah, I'd hate to uh, lose GPS on my way to find the best dumpling place in Irving, and it yeah. just—I'd be lost. I wouldn't know how to get home. Well, I uh, found Google Maps gives me trouble here in Texas, anyways, especially with those left <laughs> exits versus right exits, and <laughs> yeah, uh, for sure. Um, so uh, the other day, um, I think I, I'm not going to try the number, but 
um, there was some kind of uh, solar flare, like maybe three or four days ago that uh, created some kind of alarm. I, I guess it was maybe off the side. So um, not uh, directly towards the earth, but uh, I saw like amateur radio signals and um, creating interference and whatnot. Um, how often do these things take place and um, uh, how much of a threat are they? So they, so the sun actually has a cycle. Uh, it has highs and lows. Uh, what's happening is the sun's magnetic field flips poles every um, 11 years. Uh, so its north pole becomes its south pole. Its south pole becomes its north pole. It's its own magnetic field. And during the between time for that, you know, between the flips, the sun's magnetic field gets really, really distorted. And we call that solar maximum. And that's when it's sending out the most hazardous material. That's when you get those coronal mass ejections where it's just blasting plasma towards Earth. Um, and so that happens about every 11 years. Um, can't remember. So the last solar maximum was around 2011 or 2012. So we're approaching it again. Um, so we're going to be seeing more and more of these flares. Um, you know, it's every couple of weeks you get some geomagnetic storm. Um, it seems I, I follow a lot of the, you know, I, I, I more study a lot of the more fundamental physics, but you know, I follow all the geomagnetic storm trackers and all that on Twitter. And so I'm always seeing the news about them. Um, the big ones, you know, you get the really bad ones that cause a lot of problems. You get one or two, a solar cycle. Um, one that I remember um, 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 was in 2003 on Halloween, actually, and it actually cost billions of dollars in damage to satellites. And, um, you know, they had losses in the power grid and the oil industry, and it was a mess. It actually triggered Congress to spend more money on space weather. Um, but uh, um, and, and then there's an infamous one. Uh, we've never seen one like this with our new technology that gets affected by it. But there was an infamous event called the Carrington event from the 1800s. I think it was like 1850s or 60s, uh, where basically someone, I think it was Carrington, was looking at a telescope, saw a flare on the surface of the sun. And then several hours later, there was a huge geomagnetic storm caused by it. The aurora, it was so big, the aurora could be seen Probably from Texas, you would have been able to see it during this event. It caused telegraph lines to catch fire because of the electric currents in the ground. And, um, you know, just imagine something like that hits us now when we're, you know, much more technology dependent, much more electrified. Uh, we actually had a solar flare that was almost as bad as the Carrington, but it missed us a couple of years ago. Oh, so good. <laughs> Thankfully. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what, uh, talk about your background a little bit. How, how did you get interested in this and, and why, uh, why space physics? Why, uh, study the magnetosphere? So I actually started out in engineering. Um, I did electrical engineering undergrad and, uh, I took a, you know, we, in engineering, you have to do a capstone design class, you know, you're at, at the end of school, you know, that's sort of, choosing something to specialize in and you do a big design project. So I did GPS uh, system design as my capstone. So we actually had to, uh, you know, we went to a lab and we actually programmed up the solution to actually get the position on GPS. My project was I did a 2D position just so that you could trace someone traveling around a map like on your phone. Um, but one of the things I thought was most interesting 
was, um, you know, how GPS signals are affected by the atmosphere. And so, and especially the ionosphere where, you know, you have these charged particles that can interact with the radio waves as it's propagating. And it turns out the ionosphere can cause a significant amount of error in GPS measurements unless you use special techniques. And so that kind of got me on the path. So when I went to grad school, I wanted to do graduate research with my GPS professor on, you know, the ionospheric effect on radio waves and stuff. And he said, well, we're actually creating a big new space science group that was joint with engineering and, you know, electrical engineering, aerospace and physics. And so they were creating this big center. And one of the professors that was joining, uh, his name was Dr. Robert Clower, um, deployed ground measurements. So he had, you know, he deployed magnetometers, which measure the Earth's magnetic field and disturbances in the Earth's magnetic field, as well as radars, which can measure the flow of plasma during these storms in the upper atmosphere, the ionosphere. And basically he got, said, I could go on an Antarctic adventure because he was deploying magnetometers in Antarctica. So I was young and I thought, oh, that sounds fun. So, um, so I got to go to Antarctica. Um, I spent about a month and a half there, camped on the plateau, you know, 20,000 feet up. <laughs> wow, that's crazy. Yeah, we had to shovel a bunch of snow to bury the battery box, you know, because they have these solar panels that charge the batteries, and then the sensor has to be far away. And yeah, it was about a six foot uh, by six foot deep, 10 by 10 foot um, a hole we had to dig in the snow to bury all the electronics so it wouldn't freeze. Um, so that was an adventure. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's awesome. Um, it, UTA, um, as you mentioned, has a, a space physics group. Um, the uh, planetarium here, also an incredible resource. Um, I, I guess maybe from the outside, um, it, you wouldn't think that, UTA would, would be kind of on the cutting edge of, of space physics, but um, can you talk about, you know, some of the people in the group and some of the opportunities for students? Um, um, you know, you don't have to go far away to, uh, to study space. You can do it right here in uh, the heart of the Metroplex in Arlington, Texas. Right. Yeah. And so, uh, yeah, so for, so we have a space physics group and we do have an astrophysics group since I'm representing the physics department. I figure I can mention them too. Um, the space physics group, we have, uh, um, four people, including me. So, um, I'm more of an observationalist. So I look at observations of the ionosphere and magnetosphere. So if people want to look at satellite data and do observations, I'm definitely the one to come talk to. Um, so there's, uh, so there's Dr. Yue Deng, who was originally going to come here, but I guess she had a conflict. Uh, she does upper atmospheric modeling. So she looks at, so, you know, the Earth's ionosphere where there's plasma and it can be, and it can interact with the magnetosphere and solar wind. Um, you know, she does models of that ionosphere and how it affects the neutral atmosphere uh, because, you know, the ionosphere and the neutral atmosphere overlap. And so she does modeling of the ionosphere and thermosphere. Um, I think she actually had a big project with the uh, Air Force because they're really interested in that because, you know, the ionosphere can heat up the neutral atmosphere and it can cause, you know, sort of like air lifting up. And so it can suddenly change the density of the air, which means the satellites will slow down. And so the Air Force can have trouble tracking their own satellites. Um, so she does a lot of upper atmospheric modeling. 
then there's uh, Dan Welling. Um, he's the second newest um, after me. Um, he does magnetospheric modeling, and he has a big model called the Space Weather Modeling Framework. It was originally developed at Michigan um, that basically models from the sun to the earth. So it's a really big, uh, complex model. He's really, if anyone's a big computer geek, he's really into coding and he actually Twitch streams some of his coding sessions. So you can actually go on Twitch and he's got a really good sense of humor, funny guy. So he's entertaining too. So you're not just watching a guy code, you're watching a guy code and make good jokes and stuff. <laughs> so, uh, I, I should plug that. And then finally, you know, the leader of our group is Dr. Ramon Lopez. Uh, he's been here the longest he, uh, you know, I think he told me there's only one data set in the entirety of space physics he hasn't worked with. So he's got a lot of experience. Uh, his, his, his main thing is theory and modeling. He also does simulations of the magnetosphere. But he's, you know, if there's a data set or an instrument, he's probably published a paper with it at some point. Uh, so he, he definitely is the all-knowing expert of the group. So that's sort of the space physics group here at UTA. And a lot of us do hire undergraduates and graduate students. And Yeah. And um, obviously your capstone um, was a influential part in, in you deciding that uh, you wanted to make the switch from engineering to um, more science. Yeah. yeah. More science. But um, do you see the value in, uh, I guess in the college of science, uh, it feels like uh, we like to create these opportunities for learning outside of the classroom because we, value the, um, the experiences and, um, you know, you get to learn alongside, uh, these experts that are, that are doing research that it's cutting edge. Um, but can you talk kind of about the value of, of undergraduate and even graduate level research? Yeah, well, uh, undergraduate level research is great. Actually, uh, one of the PhD students here in our department, um, who, uh, is working with Dr. Lopez, um, Pauline Dredger was, uh, a research experience for undergraduate student with me when I was at Colorado. And uh, it was actually funny because she really wanted to be in the solar physics group. So she was kind of disappointed that she got put with the magnetosphere people. And by the end of the summer, she loved the project. And it was, it was a modeling project using the model that Dr. Lopez uses a lot. So she got, she did enough work that she was able to present it at our big conference, um, American Geophysical Union. Uh, fall meeting that's in December. And Dr. Lopez was there. I was so impressed with her, her work. He encouraged her to apply here. And now she's a graduate student here. And so I think getting that hands-on experience and actually getting to do research, um, you know, can give you an idea of things you may not have known you wanted to do that then when you did it, you realized you really enjoyed it. Um, or, you know, sometimes you do something and it's not a great fit. And so having that experience, I remember, uh, um, you know, when I was an undergraduate, I thought I wanted to do control systems, you know, and I did a job with control systems, uh, at a defense contractor who will remain nameless and I was bored to tears. And so that motivated me looking in other areas, you know? So I think it's really good to get experience outside of the classroom, hands-on research, or, you know, for the STEM people that are more on the applied hands-on work experience. And yeah, great. Great. What, um, I know some things uh, maybe can't talk about are still in process, but what's uh, what's on the horizon for you? What what's kind of in process or, or um, what's what's next for you? So the big thing I really want to do 
is, uh, you know, if, if I want to step back and look at just overall theme, um, you know, I've been working the past, jeez, uh, um, it launched seven years ago, uh, the MMS mission. And MMS mission is designed to probe these small scale features in the magnetosphere and kind of study fundamental plasma physics. And the big question is, what do those features mean? What is their effect on the larger scale system? Because, you know, the problem is plasma is multi-scale. You have these big storms that happen around Earth uh, that can lead to small scale turbulence and there could be feedback. And so one of the things I'd like to really do is, you know, I've been down in the weeds looking at all these small scale structures in plasma and space. And I'd really like to ask the question, how does it relate to the big system? You know, in both directions, you know, does the small scale stuff feedback and change the big space weather storms, and at the same time, do different conditions on the large scale change what's happening on the small scale? And so I'd like to really, you know, remove the microscope or find some way to integrate or reconcile what we see on the big picture versus what we see on the small picture. So, yeah, awesome. Well, um, you've been doing great work here at UTA and uh, certainly. Uh, our, our faculty physics uh, in the, the entire college is enriched by uh, the, the work that you're doing. So um, but looking out into the audience, um, wondering if anybody had any uh, questions today. No, no worries. If no, Oh, here's a question in the, in the fourth row here. So the most surprising. So I'm trying to think of one that I could do that isn't super technical because there are some that are really down in the weeds. But, you know, uh, so a lot of the really interesting stuff I've seen comes from my colleagues that actually do study other planets and how different those other planets are at Earth. So, for example, um, um, at Jupiter. Um, so for Earth, you know, I mentioned earlier that the solar wind, you know, the magnetic field in the solar wind can actually open up the Earth's magnetic field and cause particles to get in. That doesn't happen as often at Jupiter. Um, you know, one, the, the density of the solar winds a lot smaller by the time it hits there. And Jupiter, um, there is a moon in Jupiter that I didn't know about. It's got, it's got all these volcanoes and it's constantly spewing um, uh, matter into Jupiter's magnetosphere. So, you know, Earth's magnetosphere is very sparse. There's a reason why we say space is effectively a vacuum, right? But Jupiter's has a lot of mass uh, because of all that volcanic matter, because Jupiter has big moons, you know, there are planets in their own right. Um, so some of the interactions between the moons of Jupiter and Jupiter's own magnetosphere are really interesting. And, you know, they show us just how variable things are. Um, you know, there's a, there's another thing that's fascinating is uh, Europa, uh, the moon at Jupiter has a uh, liquid water ocean under the ice. So there could be life there. And so I know NASA's sending a clipper to check that out and see, um, you know, probably not intelligent life, but, you know, maybe they'll find, I don't know, space whales or <laughs> maybe just bacteria. Who knows? Something would be interesting, you know. Thank you. Great question. Just uh, again, we really appreciate you being here for being a, a guest on uh, Voices Live. Uh, again, uh, taking place here in the UTA Planetarium, but uh, in the slightly larger picture, uh, Science Week here at UTA in the College of Science. Uh, lots of great events uh, throughout the week. Uh, 
particularly uh, physics wise Thursday, uh, Dr. Lori Glaze from NASA will be here and uh, she will give a talk. She's the director of the planetary sciences division at NASA. So uh, some of those probes that may be headed to Jupiter, she's uh, in charge of uh, the, the group that are sending them there. And um, also a UT uh, a alum from the uh, department of physics, I think twice uh, both undergrad and masters. So a uh, great event here for Science Week. Um, and again, thank you for uh, coming and being a guest on Voices Live. Thoughts from Maverick Scientists leading the charge to innovate, discover, and learn. Thanks for having me.